um, who is a, a great friend of our ministry. Um, he works for Growing Healthy Churches, which is the family of churches that we partner with. Uh, hold on to your socks because he has a great message in store. We'll give you a huge, huge round of applause to Gilbert Foster. It's great being in Scotland this morning. <laughs> Shoot. It's great being in Stockton this morning, okay? Yeah, you're nothing like Scotland, okay? I'm just back from Scotland. Kenya first, then Scotland. Then I'm about to go to Guatemala tomorrow. And it's just a joy, however, to stop over in Stockton. Uh, are, you ready? are you ready for some Scottish preaching? Okay, okay. I'm Gilbert. And if you've never been here when I preached, let me remind you, it's not me that has the accent. You guys took our language and you abused it badly, okay? I say no more than you guys stand in line and we form a queue. So much more sophisticated, you know? And, and where did the H go in herb? Can I have some herbs, please? Herbs, 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 H-E-R-B-S, okay? Uh, uh, I'm Scottish, and we're from the tough part of Britain, okay? Uh, even the Romans didn't want it. They invaded England, and they built a wall when they looked over and saw men wearing skirts. And they said, we ain't going over there, okay? Uh, but every Scottish person knows the word that birthed our nation. Whiskey. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry. Uh, if you've ever watched Braveheart, you'll know the word that I'm referring to, okay? It's the first war of independence, 1296. Like, you guys weren't around then, okay? You're just a baby nation. Trying to be an empire, we were an empire, okay? And it's not all it's cracked up to be, believe me, okay? Uh, but William Wallace, sadly played by an Australian actor, uh, with his face painted white and blue, the St. Andrew's Cross of Scotland, with the haunting war voice of the bagpipes in the background, beaten and about to die, William Wallace with his last breath cries, Freedom! It's a powerful word. It's a word that features large in the history of this nation, okay? My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty. How does it go? Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. Freedom. Freedom. But I want to talk about another word. A word that birthed something bigger and greater than this nation or any nation. Uh, if you have a Bible, open it up to John's first epistle, chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. If you haven't got a Bible, that's okay. And you'll hear it read in the true way of reading the Scriptures, okay? The English spoken way. John's first epistle, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
In this, the love of God was manifested towards us that God has sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved. Maybe your Bible says, dear friends. But the real word, the better word, is this maybe strange, old-fashioned word, beloved. But let me get there a little later as we go through this morning, okay? For a few years... I sat under the teaching of a pastor that I have the greatest respect for. He taught me much. And he wrote a book entitled Love Beyond Reason. And the author, my ex-pastor, John Ortberg, writes about learning about two kinds of love. There's one kind of love that seeks value in its object. Uh, This kind of love is a love of people or a love of things Because they are lovable. For instance, I love ice cream. I love lazy Saturday mornings. You obviously love lazy Sunday mornings because you're at the second service, okay? (laughs) I I love apple products, okay? And apple pie with the ice cream that I love. I love real football. (laughs) You guys play throwball, okay? But uh, the world plays football. And if you don't want to know the score, don't listen to me for the next minute. But the French one, okay? I I love Giardelli chocolate. I love Godiva chocolate. I love Cadbury's chocolate. I love Lindt chocolate. I love C's chocolate. I love Belgium chocolate. I love Swiss chocolate. I love milk chocolate. I love fruit dipped in chocolate. I love nuts dipped in chocolate. I love chocolate dipped in chocolate. I love chocolate, okay? We love campfires. We love July the 4th. Oh, some of you do. Some of us call it treason, you know? We love the Cubs. I first came to America and I lived in Chicago. I love the Cubs, okay? Some of you love the Giants, okay? We love the Golden State Warriors, okay? I mean, I love Steph Curry. Never met the guy. I love him, okay? Uh, We love the Raiders losing. No, 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 no. We love the Raiders losing. Don't forget that last part of the word, okay? Okay? Uh, There is a love that looks for what is beautiful or lovely or expensive, a status, is tasty, is successful, is dazzling, uh, is lovable. And that love seeks value in what is loved. But there is another kind of love. There is a kind of love that creates value. In what is loved. G.K. Chesterton puts points it this way. 
I must be loved before I am lovable. Really? You're bringing in all those coffees for, 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 for me? No? Okay. There's a guy who just walked in with a tray of coffee. Starbucks coffees by the looks of it. And he's not sharing it. Hi. What are you, Presbyterian? Oh. Can you remember Beauty and the Beast? Yeah? Not many of us are beauty. Most of us are beast. And so we must be loved before we're lovable. Let me speak into our souls for a few moments. Being loved before you are lovable, that's not a natural act. It's not an easy act. Being loved before you are lovable is revolutionary. It's love of another kind. And this is the revolution that Jesus brought into the world way before Disney. It was this that began a strange community called the church. Beloved, love of another kind. Love beyond reason, beyond rationale. Love beyond human ability. Love beyond. Now, take John, the writer of this short letter at the end of the New Testament. John understood beauty and the beast. John was a disciple of Jesus, and in the gospel of John, which is attributed to his name, he's given a little nickname. He's described as the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all the disciples, but Jesus was a master of love. But it took a particular form when it came to this man called John. N.T. Wright, another New Testament professor, talks about this. Most likely, he says, John was the youngest of the disciples. Now, that's important, especially important in a culture which values age and honor. Most likely, as the youngest, you see, you see we excuse the youth of today. We say, ah, they're just young. But in ancient Eastern culture, Maturity, being aged, was viewed with distinction and youthfulness was frowned upon. You ever been the runt of the pack? Well, to be the youngest, to be the youngest in that culture was to be the least strategic disciple, the least mature disciple, the least valued disciple. But the Apostle John writes, and maybe it's a coded message to his fellow disciples or a dig at them, I don't know, but he says, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. And John writes a lot about being loved in his gospel and in his epistles. And he writes about this other kind of love. And it was so striking that he and the other New Testament writers had to find a new word for it. And so they came up with an old Greek word, the word called agape, agape. Now, if you've been around churches, you might have heard about this word agape. It's a Greek word. It's not an English word, okay? It's been around for centuries before the church, but it was obscure and rarely used back in the Greek language. Back in the day, it was kind of bland word. It just meant to prefer one thing over another thing. But in the New Testament, 
they seized this word agape and they filled it with this idea of love of another kind, of a love that doesn't seek what's going to be valued, but creates value. The church did this. The church took this word agape and they filled it out as they lived and loved and existed together as the church. Jesus took strange, odd types of people and he brought them together as a community of agape. <laughs> strange and odd kinds of people. <laughs> Take a look. Take a look. He loved the young as much as the old. He treated women equal to men. He, he loved the community outsider as much as the community insider. He loved the Gentile as much as the Jew. He loved all because he was love of another kind. And the church, the church became this community of ragamuffins. The church became this community of love. The church became the possessors and the agents of a new kind of love. And John, John wants us to understand this, so he begins, beloved, let us love one another. Beloved. Beloved. Ever heard the old wedding ceremonies? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. It, it, it can sound like something only a pastor would say, you know, like, like there's male and there's female and there's pastors. They're kind of this third sex, okay? And they're kind of weird people, okay? I used to be one, you can tell. But you have to understand this, okay? This little word, beloved, wasn't just a word. This little word, beloved, was an idea. This little word, beloved, changed the world. So how do you tell people what this agape love is like? It's vast. It's so thoroughly different. How do you go about telling people this new incredible concept of agape? There once was a pastor, and he decided that his congregation were not always getting the point of his preachers. <laughs> That's why Brad's taking time out, okay? Okay? That's why pastors die more often than not of insanity, okay? So, so perhaps to help get his point across, he would do a visual demonstration. So, one Sunday morning on the platform, he puts four wiggly worms into four separate jars that are sitting on the platform. One jar was filled with alcohol drop in the worm. One jar was filled with cigarette smoke, drop in the worm. One jar was filled with chocolate syrup, in drops the worm. And one jar was filled with dirt, good clean dirt, in drops the worm. At the end of the sermon, the worm in the jar filled with alcohol was dead. 
In the second jar, the jar filled with cigarette smoke, that worm, also dead. But the worm that was in the jar filled with syrup, chocolate, I was dead as well. (laughs) But the one that was in the good clean dirt, it was alive and thriving. And so he asked the congregation, what do you learn from the demonstration? What's the point? (laughs) And a little old lady at the back of the church raises her hand and says, pastor, pastor, as long as you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you'll never have worms. It's it's the challenge. It's the challenge of speaking, okay? Making sure that people understand what you're communicating and they don't miss the point. So, here's this huge, vast, new concept, love of another kind. How does Jesus communicate it to make sure people get it? So, Jesus does something pretty clever. He heads north to a certain town in Israel. And it's Matthew chapter 4. And he's about to start his entire Save the World mission. And he stands up tall and he gives his first public address as a new rabbi, the new leader, the Messiah. And he does it through a visual demonstration. And the visual demonstration is the place that he's chosen to go to communicate what his agape revolution would look like. It says he went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach this message, repent. For the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. To begin his ministry, his proclamation, his agape revolution, he heads north to the farthest outpost in Israel, the town of Capernaum. Now, (laughs) no one who wants to start a movement starts it in Capernaum. I know. Uh, No one came there who was royalty. Herod Antipas, who ruled the northern area of Israel as a client king, so he was given the authority to, to be king, but he had to pay taxes to the Romans who were the real kings, okay? He didn't live anywhere near Capernaum. He lived on the shores of Galilee at a place called Tiberias, not far from Nazareth. The Roman procurator, Pilate, who had the real, Pontius Pilate, who had the real power, he never went to Capernaum. He lived in Jerusalem and stayed in the palace of Herod in in the city of capital, city of Jerusalem. But Jesus, he went to where no one else would go as a visual demonstration that what he was about, his kind of love, was utterly and thoroughly different. And to this destitute, forgotten, ignored border people, he demonstrates that his agape revolution would be different than any other revolution any Messiah before has ever spoken about. Now, (laughs) I know it's going to be difficult for the people of Stockton 
to imagine a place that's hot and brown and dry and dusty where no president would ever go to start his campaign for the White House. You know, this is not far from Fresno, okay? Yeah. We are living in modern Capernaum, okay? It's not the end of the world, but you can see it sometimes from here, okay? And the end of the world's called Bakersfield, that's what I think, okay? But, but you know, Scotland to here, I believe in purgatory, believe me, okay? But in Capernaum, alongside the dust, there was poverty and economic hardship. They were far removed from the urban centers where trade could take place in Jerusalem. There was oppression and injustice. Yes, they were under the rule of the Roman Empire, but there was also this other client king, Herod Antipas, who was an evil man. He ruled under the Hasminian dynasty, and he was a mean guy, okay? Uh, there, was, there was disease. There, there, there was no hospitals in Capernaum. If you got sick, too bad. This was the land, it says also, of Naphtali and Zebulun, Galilee of the Gentiles. What was going on in Capernaum? Racial, racial tension, ethnic conflict, religious pluralism. Capernaum was dark and hard and forgotten and ignored. If you lived there, you felt the oppression. You felt the darkness. It was like a shadow, the shadow of death. You experienced a hard, cold, unloving environment. And into the darkness, light was breaking through. Into the hard and the cold, love was coming. And it was breaking through for the Am Harats. The Am Harats. This would be translated the people of the land. The rabbis considered these kinds of people as incapable of understanding the law. And if you couldn't understand the law, you couldn't know God. They were viewed as ignorant people, backward people, the riffraff, okay? They were the commoners, the indigenous people, the migrants, the illegals. The rabbis had a list of six things that it was a disgrace for a student rabbi to do. And number five on the list, it was a disgrace to recline at a table with a common person, with an amharas. Recline at a table? That means to eat. Who you ate with was a social statement. Still is. I wrote much of this message as I flew coach. Six rows away through a curtain when the first class passengers in their comfy chairs sipping their complimentary cocktails, eating their complimentary food. They ate, we watched. We got to sip a little bit of complimentary water and, of course, a bag of cardboard pretzels, the snack of hell, 
Okay? Social status. Picture the school cafeteria. There's the jocks table. There's the cheerleaders table. And then Jesus comes along and he messes up the whole order. He invites nerds and dweeps to sit at the jocks table. He makes the outsiders the insiders. The last will be made first. And every time he does it, there's a flip response. If the last are made first, then the first are no longer first. And if the outsiders are made the insiders, there are no outsiders. Because he just doesn't love the lovable. And this got Jesus into huge trouble. The Pharisees, the Jewish upper class, they hated him because of who he loved. Because of who he invited in. Jesus flipped the social norms. Jesus changed the rules, even the rule of love. I read this fascinating story which quoted a guy by the name of Robert Roberts. Were his parents smoking or something when they wrote that down? Okay. And he writes about a fourth grade class in which the teacher introduced a game called the balloon stomp. A balloon was tied to the ankle of every child. And when the signal was given, the object of the game was to pop everybody else's balloon whilst protecting your own balloon. And the last child with an intact balloon was the winner. Balloon stomp is a zero-sum game. If I win, you lose. And anyone else's success diminishes my chances. I must regard everyone else as someone to overcome, someone to be pitted against. It's a Darwinian contest, survival of the fittest. And the fourth grade class, they went at it with Darwinian spirit. Balloons were relentlessly targeted and destroyed. No ones were safe. The battle was over in mere seconds. And the kid with the only still inflated balloon on his ankle, was secretly the most disliked kid in the class. Then Roberts writes, a disturbing thing happened. A second class were brought in to play this game, only it was a class of developmentally challenged children. They were also given a balloon each and the same instructions. Spectators watching on had a sinking feeling on how these kids might take the destruction of their colorful balloons. But something happened. The instructions had been given too quickly for the kids to understand. But the one idea that seemed to sink in was that the balloons were supposed to be popped. But instead of fighting each other off, these children got the idea that they were supposed to help each other pop their balloons. So they formed a kind of balloon stomp co-op, okay? And, and one boy was getting frustrated because the balloon that he was after on this little girl's ankle wouldn't hold still. And so the little girl bends down and holds her balloon 
while he pops it and then he bends down and holds his balloon so she can pop his smiles all around. On and on this went with the children helping one another in the great stump. And when the last balloon was popped, everybody cheered because everybody had won. So who got the game right and who got the game wrong? Jesus came and he changed the entire game. No longer love someone because of their value, but love someone and create in them value. Jesus loved people before they were lovable. Will Willman is an interesting Christian teacher and writer, Alabama bishop. And he was asked a question about what's the biggest challenge facing Christians and the church in the next 50 years? And he replied, may Christians be half as interesting as Jesus. I love that. The revolution that got everything started was a revolution of a new kind of love. A love that loves before we're lovable. That kind of love is beautiful. That's why beauty will save the world. A thousand years ago, Prince Vladimir the Great, the pagan monarch of Kiev, he was looking for a new religion to unify the Russian people. He sent out envoys to investigate the great faiths that were neighboring his realm. And one envoy went to the Byzantine Christian capital of Constantinople, the birthplace of Eastern Orthodoxy. And he reported to the prince what he had witnessed. And listen to his words. I want to read them to get them right. The envoy said, Then we went to Constantinople, and they led us to the place where Christians were together as brothers and sisters, a church, and they were worshiping their God. We knew not whether we were in heaven or earth, for on earth there is no such vision or beauty, and we do not know how to describe it. We only know that God dwells among them, we cannot forget that beauty. When Prince Vladimir heard about the unearthly beauty that was there as the Christians worshipped their God, he adopted Christianity as the new faith for the Russian people. He wasn't drawn to it by its apologetics or by its ethics or by its pronouncements or by its doctrine. He was drawn to it by its aesthetics, its beauty. So 900 years later, one of Russia's most famous writers, Fyodor Dodovsky, he wrote these words, beauty will save the world. 
Is that how the people of Stockton view the people of First Baptist Church Stockton? Are they blown away by your beauty? The beauty of you loving as the people of God. Not what you stand for in your doctrines, but what you live in your love. But what's the beauty? Is it the church building? Ah, you've not got too bad a building, but it's not the building. Is it your church choirs and music? Not really. Is it the church art? Which seems to be missing. <laughs> Is it church picnics? Yes! It's church picnics. It's, it's a coming together of people who would have no reason on earth to spend time together and love each other. Doctors with their patients, CEOs with their office workers, Ace fans with Giants fans, people from the gated communities of Stockton with those who live in apartments looking over trash cans, people with degrees, with people who don't even have their legal papers, single moms and divorced couples with grandparents who are celebrating 50 years of marriage, those who vote for the right and those who vote for the left, those who've had abortions and those who march for the right to live, those who love rock music and those who love country. <laughs> Personally, I don't think nasal singers get to heaven, just so you know, okay? But don't you love church picnics? Don't you love them? They are, they are agape picnics. They are holy moments. They are beautiful, despite the ucky potato salad, which always appears, Okay? You and I have been loved even when we were not that lovable. A new kind of love has invaded earth. A love that creates value in what it loves. Jesus has come and he has started a revolution. And that revolution has a word. And the word is beloved. Beloved. And just in case you miss it, you are the beloved of God. First Baptist Church Stockton, you strange and odd people. You, you are the beloved of God. The beloved of God. Now listen. Hear what John says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He says that because it's so easy for you and me to come to church and think, oh yeah, I'm pro-love. I love God and he loves me. It could be easy to catch this incredible, grace-filled, revolutionary love and take hold of it. It could be easy to love the love. But John quickly says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. 
the difficult neighbor? Yeah. The unlovable uncle? Yeah. The selfish co-worker? Yeah. The arrogant boss? Yeah. The self-righteous Christian? Yeah. The family member who pushes all of your buttons. Yeah. We ought also to love one another. I reckon the people of Stockton probably look in here and think, yep, the guys in First Baptist Church, they love one another. It's part of why you come here week after week. It's why you've grown as a church and, and you love Brad and his team and what they're doing with their new vision and Vision 2020. You love one another. Why else would you be here? There's better things to do in Stockton, I think. <laughs> so that begs me to ask my last question. How far does your love of one another go? Could there be an another that you love? You guys, if you don't know this, and Scott never mentioned this, yeah, I work part-time for Grown Healthy Churches, but my main passion is I work for an organization called When I Grow Up, which works with children who live in extreme poverty. That's what I do. That's what my passion is. I love the church. I think the church is the primary agent in the kingdom of God. But boy, do I love being around those who are working with children and uh, children who've got nothing, who are AIDS orphans and left alone in slums. And we run various programs and schools, and I raise the money for that there, okay? That's my job, okay? It's a fun job, believe me, okay? So one of our global leaders, David Oginga, he's a hero of mine, okay? He grew up in a slum, and he managed to finish high school, and he was accepted to study medicine at university. But he couldn't afford it. And so David began to tutor kids who were living in the slum and nowhere near able go, go, going to school. And David, he worked as a trash collector, to pay the rent for the small room he rented to tutor kids in, 20 kids in, 40 kids in, 60 kids. And if you've ever been to a slum, the trash isn't like the trash in Stockton. It stinks to high heaven. It's piled high. It's got sewage, raw sewage filling it. Okay? Here's something that I just learned about David. He didn't sleep in a bed until he was 20 years old. For the first 20 years of his life, he slept on cold dirt or cold concrete. He grew up regular diarrhea. He still got, suffers from bronchitis and a very weak immune system due to how and where he slept in those first 20 years of his life. Human dignity should not be a privilege, people. But having no bed... And having worked as a trash man, David leads a work in Kenya that impacts over 5,000 people every single 
day. And he runs an elementary school for over 500 children and a high school for nearly 200 children and AIDS clinics and feeding programs and safe houses and a Bible training institute. (laughs) How far will you go in loving others and creating in them value through your love? Because remember, love is not a noun. Love is a verb. So... I normally come with candy. <laughs> I don't know why. I was like here visiting with Brad just the other month there, two months ago, three months ago. And as I walked out, Scott saw me and said, hey, Gilbert, you're coming back. Great. What candy are you bringing? My daughter's excited. I'm thinking, huh. you know, most churches ask me, what's the word of the Lord you're going to bring? <laughs> Your executive pastor asked for the candy, okay? So I've brought, I've brought before Twixes and you bought some Twixes from me as an act of love for the children. Uh, Last time I was here, I bought Skittles. And remember, I threw away the grape Skittle. I don't like the grape, so one one of every five Skittles I threw away, and one out of every five people live in a slum. That was the principle. But this time, I brought you a British candy called Love Hearts. They're just full of sugar. That's all they are, okay? But they've got cute little sayings on them, sayings like, my all, or... One says, true love. And one says, sweetie pie. Another says, thunder thighs. <laughs> so, 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 something like that, okay? Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so, will you love again children in a slum? Like, I noticed one of the songs that we were singing, your love never fails. It goes on and on and on. And I'm thinking, does it? Does the love of the people of Stockton for children who live in slums only happen when I appear with my candy and you get something for it? Is your love just a love for something? Or is yours a love of another kind that will create in children who you've never seen value? So, we have a high school, okay? It's a boarding high school. We get the teenagers out of the slum 50 kilometers away in the middle of a field and we keep them safe for four years just to focus. They're up at five in the morning and they don't go to bed till 10 at night and they're studying the entire time. It's like prison. But they call it school over there, okay? And they have a dormitory. Dormitory is concrete floor, wooden walls, and corrugated iron ceiling. And the wind blows through. And although it's Africa, it gets colder at night and damp at night than you ever imagine. Okay? So we're trying to build them a new dormitory. And I guess what every kid will get in the new dormitory? A bed. For the first time in their lives, they'll have their own bed. Teenagers in Kenya, to have high school and a bed, they've won the lottery. Okay, oh, I wish our kids could get that level of contentment, okay? So, can you give them a bed? Can you buy from me a love heart that reminds you not only that you're the beloved of God and he's given you his heart, but now his heart needs to flow through you to love others and create in them value. So at the end of the service, they're going to be on this table. We're going to remove the communion elements. And you can just, as you leave, come up and take away a a love heart. You can eat them or keep them. And remember, I'm Scottish. We invented economics. So you don't get this for a dollar. Because you don't tip the poor. $20 minimum. I was in Marin County last week. 
Uh, no, a few weeks ago. Mar- you know Marin, posh place? A lady wrote me a check for $1,002. For one of these. <laughs> I'll take $1,003 also. It would be the largest check I've ever received for a candy, okay? So, how practical is your love? How real is your love? There is a love that creates value. And I believe the good people of First Baptist Church Stockton have that kind of love. And I'm asking you, invest in children that are invisible to you but you will create value in them that they will know that love doesn't fail, that there is a new kind of love, and they are valued and they are precious. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought to love another.